Hey, Songcraft listeners, today's episode, like so many others, is brought to you by Pearl Snap Studios. Go to pearlsnapstudios.com and find out what they can do for your song. No matter what genre you write in, they can help you make a demo or fully produced record that you will be absolutely proud to share with friends, family, or even pitch to professional artists. Dozens of Songcraft listeners before you have taken advantage of their services and have been more than pleased. We've given you some of the testimonials on air. I'm sure we'll do it again, but find out what they can do for you. Hit up our friend Justin and his team at pearlsnapstudios.com. Tell them that Songcraft sent you and you'll get a discount on your first recording. Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to You Should Probably Leave by Chris Stapleton and co-written by our guest, Ashley Gorley. I know it ain't all that liberty you should probably leave. With an unprecedented track record of nearly 70 chart-topping country hits, Ashley Gorley is perhaps the most commercially successful songwriter in history. He has written more number one singles than anyone in any genre and has had over 400 of his songs recorded by artists such as Morgan Wallen, Chris Stapleton, Luke Bryan, Thomas Rhett, Carrie Underwood, Blake Shelton, Kelsey Ballerini, Lee Bryce, Brad Paisley, Darius Rucker, Bon Jovi, and Weezer. Ashley has been named ASCAP Country Songwriter of the Year nine times, Billboard Country Songwriter of the Year six times, and NSAI Songwriter of the Year six times. He was then named NSAI Songwriter of the Decade for the period ranging from 2010 to 2019. Additionally, Ashley was honored as the top male songwriter of 2021 across all genres by the National Music Publishers Association. In 2023, the NMPA honored him with their Icon Award for Non-Performing Songwriters. The multiple CMA, ACM, and Grammy nominee has received the CMA's Triple Play Award 20 times in his career, which recognizes songwriters with three or more number one songs in a single year. In 2016, Ashley became the first songwriter to be honored with three CMA Triple Play Awards in a single year for earning nine chart-topping songs in a 12-month period. He repeated that feat in 2020 and again in 2022. This year, Gorley was announced as ACM Songwriter of the Year, also taking home the Song of the Year Award and celebrating three Song of the Year nominations, placing him in rare company with Chris Christopherson and Merle Haggard, the only other songwriters to achieve the same feat in a single year. In addition to his decorated career as a songwriter, Ashley launched his own music publishing company, Tape Room Music, with a writer roster that has earned nearly 40 number one hits. Part one. So, Paul, on our last episode with Kevin Cronin of REO Speedwagon, we spent a good bit of time at the top of the show talking with each other about Luke Combs' cover of Fast Car. Right. And we said... On that episode, uh, we said our next episode is going to be with Ashley Gorley. And we mentioned that Ashley Gorley was a writer on Last Night by Morgan Wallen. And we were talking about how uh, wild it was that you had two country songs, uh, Morgan Wallen's Last Night sitting at number one and Luke Combs' cover of Fast Car sitting at number two. And we were saying like, wow, this is wild that the Billboard Hot 100, which is essentially the all-genre pop chart, uh, was being dominated by two country songs. Not only that, but last night had been at the top of the charts for 13 weeks. Literally, the day that we launched that episode, Olivia Rodrigo shows up right. at number one with her song Vampire. 
Yeah. I was like, okay, we just teased that Ashley Gorley is coming up as our, as our next episode and uh, talked about how this song has been dominating at number one. And, and now Olivia Rodrigo has come in. Yeah. She pushed us into obsolescence immediately. <laughs> like, immediately. Yeah. And, and I will say that uh, Olivia Rodrigo's producer and collaborator, Dan Nigro is an amazing guy. We've had him on the show. Yeah. Um, we talked to him after the enormous success of, of Olivia's first record. Um, but I am relieved to say that in the interest of us not looking like we have no idea what we're talking about, that the Morgan Wallen last night single is back at the top of the pop charts. Yeah. Olivia was there for a week. So I think it's, it's in all 15 weeks now um, that it's been at number one. Those are not necessarily all consecutive, but I think, I think like yeah. a good dozen of them were. Um, so now that we are having the Ashley Gorley episode today, I am uh, not embarrassed that we're out here spouting incorrect information. By no uh, effort or fault of our own, we've stumbled into being right again. But can I tell you what I am kind of embarrassed by? What's Is that, that we, we made such a to-do over these country songs being at the top of the chart. And now we're looking through the Billboard Hot 100 today. And it's like every second or third song seems like it, it's a, a country song. And and uh, now well, it's because every second or third song is a Taylor Swift. Song. Right. Who's not a country <laughs> artist anymore. And I understand I see that name and I have this knee jerk reaction. But still, I'm seeing there's more Morgan Wallen in here. Yep. There's Zach Bryan. Yeah. And Jelly Rolls in there. It, it seems like country has now uh, crossed over into other genres. It, it seemed like country was kind of just playing in its own field yeah. for the longest, longest, longest time. Yeah. And now, it, it, maybe it's just in terms of the number of people that like it, the, the amount of consumption that happens uh, surrounding country music. Right. But I, I don't think we need to be surprised anymore that yeah. country music is doing what it's doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there is still a, a significant segment of the music industry that looks at probably country music and Christian music as very much a subculture. Right. But then when you look at the sort of success that these artists are having on streaming, on radio, um, you know, they they and especially in country, it, it really has become part of the mainstream. And um, yeah, but it's it is still quite notable that you have the number one and number two pop song in the nation this week are country songs that came from the country genre. Do you remember a time when you talk to people and you'd be like, well, what kind of music are you into? And they would respond and say something like anything but country. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> country. There was a time even as as popular as it's always been. Where it was considered like it, it was very polarizing. Yeah, and and fortunately we've reached a time now where there are no country artists or country singles that are polarizing anymore, <laughs> um, particularly in the last couple of weeks. No. Right. Uh, but yeah. I, I've heard it said that uh, country music is the the only genre of music that people will tell you they don't like when you didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's kind of like the reverse CrossFit of music, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you read that old joke, right? How do you know if somebody's uh, involved in CrossFit? How's that? They'll tell you. <laughs> but yeah, it's an unsolicited opinion on country music. People right. were always very happy to, to put those forth. Uh, but I think now, and it's, I think country, honestly, has has sort of deliberately opened their doors. And we talked to Ashley about that somewhat in terms of, you know, production styles and even the cadences and the sounds in the music. Yeah. And now th there's some borrowing going on from hip hop and from yeah. pop and things like that, um, which I think is actually pretty cool because in a sense, you know, these dividing lines, um, they they just serve to give people reasons to hate things. Right. In right, a way. Right, right. Um, when I think it's, you know, most of the things that we love 
came about because of some sort of fusion at some point. Yeah. I mean, Elvis Presley, rock and roll happened because of an uh, of a fusion that actually involved country. And I, I have to say, like, um, I am a I am a traditionalist uh, when it comes to most music. I mean, I'm kind of a roots yeah. guy. Like, if I'm if I want to listen to country music, I want to listen to Merle Haggard. Right. If I want to listen to rock and roll, I want to listen to Rolling Stones. Like, if I want to listen to R and B, I want to listen to Otis Redding. You know, I, I kind of just gravitate towards the roots of things. And even when I listen to um, contemporary music, it, it tends very much towards uh, the Americana side or, or the rootsier side um, rather than the commercial side. But I think that, that even though, um, you know, some of what I hear on country radio isn't my cup of tea, I, I'm struck by how people get so twisted up about it. And there's hmm. sort of this thing about like, well, that's not country. You know, that's not real, quote unquote, real country. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think there's some kind of problematic undertones with that that are bigger than just musical right, genres. Right. Uh, I, and I'm not sure what people are necessarily referring to when they say that. But I think it was you who recently said to me, country music is what kids in small towns on tractors are listening to. Yeah. And, you know, they don't really care about a litmus test or about genre. And, you know, I think about Buck Owens, who was one of my favorite artists and now Buck Owens is regarded as like, you know, stone cold country. When he was doing stuff in the sixties, I mean, he was being covered by the Beatles. Right. Um, he was playing Carnegie hall and people were kind of going, well, you know, Oh, this guy's covering Chuck Berry. That's not country music. This right. is, he's bringing in too much rock. This guy's too rock. Well, now I look at, at Buck Owens as like a standard bearer of like pure traditional quote unquote country music. That's not necessarily how he was viewed in his time. Um, and so you got guys like Ashley or Luke Laird and you know, they're bringing, they grew up on R and B, they grew up on, right. you know, pop music and they're bringing some of that into country. And I don't feel like, country music as a genre owes it to me to have me like absolutely gravitate toward everything it throws at me. Right. You know, and, and, but I think every genre has a responsibility to experiment and to, to grow and to push boundaries. Well, it's, it, it, there's an irony there, right? It's like people saying, you know, in, in rock music, why can't you do something traditional like the Beatles? Well, <laughs> the Beatles were just pilloried when they first came out from not being, you know, traditional or close to it. Right. And nowadays you'd have people in country being like, you know, where's, where are the Garth Brooks's of today? Well, Garth Brooks took a lot of crap. Yeah. You know, when he first yeah. came out for yeah. for being well, for wearing a headset mic and descending <laughs> right. from a helicopter and all the things that, that Garth did and having an alter ego and floating down from yeah. heaven. <laughs> there's, there's a, a lot of extra context there. But right. yeah, to, to the point I, I raised earlier, if if kids in the country are listening to it, if if some kid who works on a farm or whatever, this is what he then that makes it country music, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, because it is it's the music of the people. It's the music of that of that part of the country. Um, and if if it happens to have Little Nas X on it, I mean, who, who am I to say that it's not country music then? Because yeah. if it's reaching the audience, yeah. and it, and if it's, you know, if I don't know, like at, at a time, all you had to do was throw a banjo on something you could call it country, or right. maybe throw a fiddle in there. And they're not even doing that now. <laughs> right. Um, the thing that's interesting to me about so much of contemporary country music is that the lyrics are countryer than ever. You know, the right. lyrics are all about dirt roads and, and beer and, you know, it's like my granddaddy and whatever. Uh, the instrumentation is less country than ever. The lyrics are more country than ever, right. which is an interesting And the thing. accents might be countryer than ever. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the vocal delivery feels very, very country at times. Right. Where, you know, you had people like um, Vince Gill 
was not the countryest sounding right. singer. We, you know, his accent wasn't just dripping on every word. Yeah. Um, but I feel like you hear that more now. And, and maybe that's to make up for what's going on in the track. Yeah. Yeah. I think it may be so like what makes this country and that's a whole debate, you know, you can right. have like what makes a, a song country, but, um, Chuck Klosterman, who's one of my favorite writers, uh, put out a book a few years ago, probably more years than I care to admit, uh, called sex, drugs, and cocoa puffs it's a classic it's a collection of essays about pop culture. Fantastic book. He kind of takes on this idea of like the authenticity police and points out that the people who kind of criticize commercial country music the most tend to be like the most like college educated, like it's a philosophical, <laughs> you know, concept right. and they're, and they're kind of determining what is and is not country. And he kind of goes like, Hey, the people go into Walmart, you know, right. uh, who are the people who live in the country. Right. Those are the people who are kind of, they're, they're listening or not listening to music. Yeah. They're the people that are deciding what is and isn't country music for yeah. them. And you know, that, that changes, it morphs, it, it expands, it contracts. Um, and I think that experimentation in, in any genre is part of what keeps a genre alive. And it's obviously, as we see on the hot 100, uh, it is it's pushing connecting. country into spaces that maybe it hasn't been before. Yeah. It's, it's connecting with the people. Yeah, in, in in a sense, these these are endless debates. There's no real answer to it, and um, like you say, it's it's a bunch of sort of like dudes in the theoretical lab coats discussing this stuff when they're not really immersed in it. It's a bunch of vegetarians talking about which cut of beef you know is, is the best. Um, but you know, I when we get to talk to somebody like Ashley Gorley, who is is a part of of making it all, you know, I I think. Um, you know, Ashley's a craftsman. Yeah. And Ashley understands what he's doing. He understands his audience. He understands the business. He understands all of that. Uh, and he's doing it at a really, really high level. Yeah. Yeah. And he is, uh, you know, a guy who knows how to write commercial country music. Right. He is both tapping into something that's there and also pushing into new areas. But you can't argue with the dude's track record. Like, no. this is a guy, like, if you want a number one country hit, this is probably a guy that, that you want to get in a room with. And it, it, that's almost like an instinct thing that you can't, you can't manufacture that. Yeah. And, and he knows his history. You know, he understands he's drawn on classic influences with some of the Stapleton stuff he's done. So a really, really well-rounded writer and uh, his track record shows it. I mean, I, the, the numbers, his success numbers are just incredible. Yeah. It, it's amazing. But anyway, without further ado, uh, here is our conversation with Ashley Gorley, who, by the way, we went to the same college in the same city. Uh, he graduated one year after me. Uh, and so that, in many ways I kind of came before him. Um, and so I don't want to say, yeah, I think I've meant, yeah. we never met, right. uh, but I think I was a real mentor to him. And I, and I would say that most of his success, uh, is probably from having been at the same college. You as cast me. a long shadow. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I don't want to brag, but uh, that can, surely that's the only explanation. So, yeah. uh, we're going to go with that. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, what I'm not kidding about, though, is that I see that the brand new Billboard Hot 100 just came out. And now we're going to have to review this again. Uh, man, the world just changes too fast. Part two. Ashley, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, guys. What's up? Doing good. Doing good. Um, most of these interviews that we do uh, with folks, we typically kind of start at the beginning and talk about, you know, people's influences and and what kind of things they were listening to growing up. And, and we're going to do that. Um, but I actually want to 
kind of do something different today. And, and that is begin with what's been happening more recently. And just to, to fill in the listeners, um, earlier this year, you topped Billboard's all genre hot 100 songwriters chart for the first time. Um, thanks in large part to 12 writing credits on the Billboard Hot 100, 10 of which were from Morgan Wallen's album, One Thing at a Time. And that album debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. So we're talking all genres here. We're not just talking country music. Um, And then the single Last Night uh, not only was a huge number one hit for Morgan, but sat at number one on both the country and the pop chart for like 13 weeks, which... Makes okay. it the first country song by a male solo artist to top the pop chart since I Love a Rainy Night by Eddie Rabbit back in 1981, which Ooh. gives me nostalgia. I'm picturing <laughs> my satin baseball jacket from that era. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then right below it at number two, also on the pop chart, is country artist Luke Combs's cover of Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. So <laughs> we're like in an yeah. unprecedented moment. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess, first off, I just want to say congratulations on making history. Um, And secondly, let's talk about genre here. Are we entering a post genre era of of music here where categories like don't even matter or or mean anything anymore? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, hopefully kind of, I think people are drawn to categories whenever they can kind of get their hands on them to put, put anything in a box. But I do think, I mean, you know, look, look at my daughter's playlist. You know what I mean? It's not in categories or anything like that. You know, the, the shows and the music people are listening to, I think there's tons of variety. Um, not that there, you know, there always has been. But yeah, I think now there's a little more kind of crossover and some people that didn't expect to like something like it. And they just throw it all on there, especially like you said, at one and two, a Tracy Chapman cover. And a yeah. uh, song being on the, on the pop charts is pretty wild. So I think it matters a little bit less. I think that's always good for for writing just to kind of take those parameters off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of, of Morgan Wallen, the lead single from that album was you proof, um, which was another massive country hit and also a top five pop hit. That's now been certified four times platinum. Yeah. I've been sipping, I've been buzzing, shooting doubles like it's nothing. All but nothing makes you go away. I need something you prove. was written with Morgan. You, you wrote that with him. Um, but last night is a song that Morgan, um, is not a writer on that you, you are obviously a a writer on. I know that last night we let the liquor talk. I can't remember everything we said, but we said it all. You told me that you wish I was somebody you never met, but baby, baby, something's telling me See you tell lights in the dust. You call your mama, I call you bluff. In the middle of the night, pull it right back up. Yeah, my my friends say let her go. 
Your friends say what the hell I wouldn't trade your kind of love for nothing else. Oh, baby. We're kind of looking at one artist, one album here. Some stuff where you co-wrote with the artist. And then there's things where the artist was was not in the room. Um, you have a lot of experience doing both. Uh, and I'm curious for you as a, a writer, is there, you know, do you walk into the room differently or do you prepare yourself differently in any way if you know you're going to be writing with an artist versus writing with uh, other writers where the artist might not be in the room or maybe you don't even know which artist you might be writing for that day? Yeah, yeah. There's like kind of three categories, like just trying to get whatever the room has for you, whatever God has in store that day. And you don't even know what you're aiming at, which those days are really fun. There's more targeted days. Like there's not an artist there, but you know who, um, who you're thinking about, you know, who you have in mind for the song, you may hit or miss, uh, you know, that mark. And then there's some days the artist is there. So there, it's kind of like split into thirds as far as my schedule or how the sessions go. But I mean, you know, Morgan Nashville is so cool. The whole community, most of the artists, um, you know, like Morgan, who could definitely write every song. He's a great songwriter. He has, I think he had two other singles out on other people uh, while this has been out, actually, um, that he'd written. But he could do that just like Luke Bryan could do that or Kenny Chesney or, or so many people. But they they love putting the song first and they they welcome those outside songs. They don't want to miss anything. And um, and they cut those. So it ends up being like half and half on a lot of people's albums where they write about half and then they end up, you know, they'll take an outside song and it'll, it'll bump one one that they wrote. So it's really unique to a uh, to country and Nashville thing, I think. Yeah, and with with the number of successes that you've had, I imagine that you've probably experienced almost every type of songwriting there is. I mean, songwriters in the last few years have had to to go to Zoom at times, do remote writing. You know, sometimes people are finishing songs via text. Sometimes you start a song with a hook. Sometimes you start a song with a verse. Sometimes you know, some gets brought in the last minute to doctor a song. I'm imagining that you've seen all of it by this point. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely. And I, I kind of like the variety of it, you know, so I don't have a particular method. It's, you know, I, I have a hard time just writing a song top to bottom, like, all right, let's just start with this lyric and go down, you know, and figure it out when we get there. I like to have, you know, I kind of like to see how the movie might end. You're at mm-hmm. least know, you know, kind of the plot. So some point toward the beginning, usually some, uh, some hooks, titles, concepts are thrown around, but I also just love starting with melody and somebody has a riff and then we just start scatting stuff over the top of it. It's usually just a big combo of those and you never know which one's going to come first. Yeah. When I was listening through, you know, kind of pointedly listening through your catalog, uh, I, I would marvel sometimes, I mean, these are great concepts, you know, and, and sometimes there's, there's a difference between a well-written song and a song that's got a great concept that either is, is, you know, handled well or not, you know, sometimes you can tell if a concept could have been handled better, but I, I hear these are great concepts that were handled really well. And, and I, I wonder sometimes if someone goes, man, I've got the best concept in the world and we bring it into a session. And do you ever hear a concept that, you know, this is writer proof? I, I don't even think that we could screw this up. Uh, you know, one instance I would look at the, the song beer and this idea that this, you know, I don't want to give it away for anyone that hasn't heard it, but I think everyone's heard it by this point that it's basically a letter from beer to you. So oh, yeah. we had these great times together. All the crazy things we've been through in this giant Sunday town. All the trouble I got you into. It's a wonder you kept me around. I'm damn proud to have you back, boy. Like I have for all these years. And I'll be here to the factory. Quit making me sincerely beer. 
That's such a great concept. Do you look at something like that and think, I, I'm so glad we get to write this today. I think this one is writer-proof. That, I mean, that one is so, you know, he's so good. Um, you know, as far as people that have come to town, you know, since I've been here, he, he knows, talk about somebody that knows what he wants and he can tell if we're writing a song, if it's for him or not in the first 10 minutes, almost before huh. it even gets started. He'll be like, I'm going to do this one or I'm not. Yeah. Um, we can pitch it. And so, yeah, that one, that was fun, but man, I'll tell you, you can mess all of them up. <laughs> you know, I, I think you, you uh, that is, uh, I wish that wasn't the case, but you can totally do that. That's kind of the whole puzzle. You know, that's, that's how my days are spent is figuring out once we land on a great idea, the best way to do it. And we still went through, I'm sure several, several different options and lyrics on that one. But yes, when, when we have that, then there's a huge sigh of relief in the room when, yeah. when somebody like Hardy says like, okay, I've got a, well, first of all, he'll say, how about a song called beer? And then we're all like, oh no, <laughs> you know, we're just going. And he has a song called Truck and the same kind of thing. You know, it's, it's funny because he'll have a simple title. He's really good at, uh, at doing that. A lot of country people are where it's a simple title. You're almost like rolling your eyes and then you listen and you're like, oh, yeah. um, so that's kind of part of the payoff. So that's kind of what that was. Once we got going on that one, then yeah, not that not that we couldn't screw it up, but we were toying more with phrasing and melodies and all that stuff. And we, we knew we loved the, the angle of that. So that that's way more fun when that happens. Well, it's funny that you mentioned even that concept and how you might have initially responded to it. Because, you know, the thought I think for a lot of writers and artists would be like, oh, not another song about beer, right? But then to actually say, we're actually going to double down. We're going to make just that the title of the song. In fact, we're going to write it lowercase. We're going to, you know, we're going to lean into this idea so much. And and I thought that was incredibly gutsy. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Thanks. I mean, they, I mean he, like I said, he's, he's so good at that. And a lot of us, we love to do that because it's like these simple titles, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, concepts, titles that haven't been part of it, hasn't been written or touched on, you know, especially in the country space. So, so it is a really fun challenge to try to throw somebody, you know, throw somebody off a little bit. It's like, Hey, what we, a lot of times in sessions will say, okay, cool title. Now that we would expect people would expect it to be about this or go like this. What's the total opposite of that, Mm -hmm. uh, that we can do that happened with sand in my boots, uh, Morgan song too, where from that title in my mind, it was like, okay, probably a redneck cowboy beach song you know country boy on the beach maybe and then we turned it to a total piano ballad story song and that's really fun when we're able to do that and people go oh shoot i wasn't expecting that well you mentioned sand in my boots which was uh both a cma and acm song of the year nominee yeah i said let's go shoot tequila so we walk back to that beach bar she said don't cowboys drink whiskey (laughs) So we drank by themselves. She said, damn, that sky looks perfect. And I said, girl, you never seen stars like the ones back home. And she said, maybe I should see them for myself. Yeah, but now I'm dodging potholes in my sunburned Silverado. This was, you know, a big year for you at the ACMs. You you won ACM Songwriter of the Year, and not one, not two, but 
three of your songs were up for ACM Song of the Year. Santa My Boots, of course, which I just mentioned. And uh, she had me at Heads Carolina um, and You Should Probably Leave uh, by Chris Stapleton. And yeah. you're talking about three songs, you know, within one year that were all massive, all, you know, recognized uh, by the industry as being, you know, song of the year material. And uh, it's it's interesting to me to kind of look at those songs and, and talk about nostalgia a little bit, because country music is a genre that is rooted in, in nostalgia. And you seem to be a person who um, embraces nostalgia. I mean, she had me at Heads Carolina is literally referencing a, a huge song from the 90s, right? Didn't know till we walked in, it was karaoke night. She was in a circle of girls chasing a shot with a line. She was laughing, they were daring her to get on the mic. One of them walked up and turned in her name. Next thing I knew, man, she was up on the stage singing Heads Carolina, Tales California. Maybe she'd fall for a boy from South Georgia. She's got the bar and the palm of her hand. And she's a 90s country fan like I am. Hey, I but at the same time you're a person who has also kind of pushed country music uh into new sonic areas you know some of the stuff with luke bryan or, or thomas rett you know things that have even been criticized sometimes for not being country enough yet there's still this like distinct nostalgia thread that runs through it as a creative person, talk a little bit about that push and pull of wanting to honor the kind of nostalgia that is intertwined in the genre, but also push the envelope and maybe explore new territory. Yeah, man. I mean, first of all, you know, nostalgia is huge in country. Nothing feels better. It's like comfort food. You know, anytime you can, you can talk about where people are like, I did that. I've been there. Um, it's always kind of a winning way to go, but yeah, along, along the way, you know, I listened to, I grew up listening to lots of different kinds of music. And, and when it comes to country, I really feel like the lyric, the American lyric and the, and the story lyric is what makes that country. So along the way, um, yeah, myself, other people kind of started playing with different, you know, musical approaches, cadences, melodies, things like that. Some where people would say like, Oh, that's not, that's not country anymore. But if you read the lyric, it's like the countryest thing out, you know, it's just because right. it might have an electronic drum or it has a part in it. Oh, here comes a synth or something like that. But we always looked at that or I did is, um, you know, you've got, got country fans, you know, for life that have been there and that's what they grew up on. And there's also new country fans that you can find, you know, with this Morgan Wallen album or like people that had never heard the old Heads Carolina, Tales California. Um, I was in a group of people and that song came on and somebody said, oh, yeah, we wrote that song. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. I'm like, have y'all ever heard the old one? They're like, no, what's that? <laughs> um, so you never know. So that, that's, that's fun too, to think you're pulling some people to some shows, um, with some of these newer, you know, different types of music that are still country, uh, based still country lyrics and, and pulling in some new fans. We, I love that. That's always fun to, to think we're, you know, playing a part in that. Yeah. Um, Scott mentioned earlier the song, You Should Probably Leave, which Chris Stapleton recorded. You wrote that with Chris and with Chris Dubois. Um, and that was a number one country in the top 30 in pop, three times platinum, CMA and ACM Song of the Year nominee. Uh, I'm running out of breath with all the superlatives that we have to say <laughs> after every song. But, um, you know, th that's a song that has a real timeless feel. Um, it harkens back 
to some some songs from kind of the soul era. And one of the things I noticed right away was how quickly the title came in. Um, by the second line, it became kind of a repeated part of the verses. I know it ain't all that liberty you should probably back to songs like you know uh, Al Green Tired of Being Alone just title comes right out uh, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch so, so many of the Motown songs Baby Love you know it's it, it that's such a classic piece of songwriting and at times I think that that people think if you're gonna make a song feel like it's got some of those timeless or even throwback elements that it's all the producer's job you know it's all about the the way the drums are mic'd or the type of reverb that's used but there is something to songwriting structure that can actually harken back to um to an earlier era and bringing bringing in something that's timeless um which you really have to know your history at that point as a as a songwriter well i'd talk a bit about that oh yeah absolutely i mean that one really felt um timeless you know chris's voice is timeless also and and just when we kind of started started that session um and, and found that groove it just felt you know it was very r&b um a little bit old school and and just it kind of felt right to say that title right after two quick lines and to keep on it and to be repetitive like you said um there's no there's no big hook coming you know too there's no like reveal all of a sudden like some yeah. country songs have so um like you said it just felt great to be like simple and just hammer that lyric home and just have different angles of like hey maybe i should you think i should stay i should probably go um, that song, man we wrote that song in 2011 and it was just on the radio wow. last year so it took 11 years for Chris to come back to that. So uh, thankfully it was timeless or uh, it wouldn't have made it um, through that. So, so yeah, that, that was just, you know, Chris can kind of do anything um, and sound amazing doing it. We were fortunate um, myself and a lot of other people in Nashville were really early to that. Cause he was here and we we're like, this is like the best singer ever. Um, why is he not huge yet? And then we kind of mm -hmm. watched it happen over the next few years, but um, he could write anything. So even, even the ones we wrote, it could be a piano song. It could be a really country song. He could write a, you know, total pop song or rock song, you know, he's in a rock band and, and he kind of, him being in the room kind of gives you the freedom to have that versatility and be like, this could be any kind of, you know, it can lean any way we want it to. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so we settled into that pocket for that, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I promised we were going to go back and, and start at the beginning and there's been so much, you know, going on in, in, you know, the last couple of years, I mean, there's been so much going on in the last 20 years for you, but particularly this last couple of years that, you know, we, we've just kind of touched on a, a small handful of the highlights there, but kind of taking us back to when you were growing up, I understand that, that you grew up in, in Kentucky and really kind of your first love was pop music and nineties and R and B that, you know, the country kind of came into the picture later and, you know, as we talk to songwriters on this show, like a lot of the old 
classic country songwriters were radio DJs. Um, and a lot of the rock guys were playing, you know, in garage bands um, when they were teenagers. And I understand that you were like DJing dances at school and, and stuff like that. Um, in any of those settings, you're talking about like you have a front row seat to observe, you know, whether you're a live DJ, a radio DJ, whether you're in a cover band, you have an immediate reaction of people like this. People don't like this. Um, I'm curious if you kind of had your antenna up uh, in those early days in terms of like, hey, you know, what what gets a reaction from people? What makes them want to go dance with their girlfriend? What makes them want to get out with all their friends and and, you know, get on the dance floor? Like, were you kind of consciously noting that as a kid and and, and kind of putting those connecting those dots in terms of what kind of music uh, moves people? Yes. I mean, well, you know, to be honest, back then growing up at 13, 14, or even until I got to Nashville, I didn't know you could be a songwriter for a publisher and not, you know, read music and not, um, not be a great singer or performer, be in a band. So early on, it's not like I thought, oh, this will help me later on in my career. I just knew that I wanted to work in music somehow. And, and yeah, I wasn't in a band. I wasn't, you know, an artist at all. Uh, don't know that bone in my body. So back then I loved me and one of my friends in high school would DJ any dances, like parties, people really had, I don't know why, where I'm from, but a lot of people, you know, if they had a, a party or birthday party or something, it would be like a dance floor vibe and everybody'd be out there. And music was a huge part of our crew, you know, coming through Midland high school, um, growing up. So I was like the mixtape man, you know, if somebody needed like, Hey, I'm, I'm going on a date. Can you make me a, a tape or a CD with some slow jams on it or whatever? I was like, yes, please call me. So I would sit in my bedroom, <laughs> a lot and just try to like make something kind of ebb and flow through through up tempos and slow songs and and was really into the the rap and r&b and pop and i mean everything you know kind of like more of an mtv kid so i would i would listen to countdowns and record those you know on cassettes or on um, vcr tapes or whatever right. and i was really i don't really know back then i didn't know what it was but i was just really trying to figure out like why are some of these songs better than others why are people freaking out about these songs what makes that happen and i really wanted to get to the bottom of that, which kind of led into the reading liner notes and, and writing of all of that. But yeah, definitely like from a DJ standpoint, um, just like watching the crowd or the dance floor, or even my friend's reaction to songs, we would just always, it was just music on all the time. So I really loved kind of making my way through an album and figuring out the songs that stood out to me and try to figure out why. And like you said, what, what gave people a reaction either to be sad or want to dance or want to jump up and down or want to get hype before a basketball game or whatever it was. Um, kind of making those mixtapes and, and DJing parties and dances. I, I feel like that was such a such a blessing, you know, not not knowing that would even have any part of like my future, but it definitely um, got me dialed in early on to like what what people love and trying to figure out why. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about just sort of wanting to be around music. It reminds me of that, you know, you, you look at sports and in basketball, they talk about somebody who's a gym rat who just wants to be around, just hangs out in the gym all the time and trying to get into a game. And, you know, we, we see in a town like Nashville where Scott and I both grew up and, and have worked there as well. And then we both live in L.A. You know, you, you see a lot of people come and go and you see people that 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 give it a go for a little bit in the music industry and for whatever reason aren't able to hang on. And right. sometimes I think those people that have that gym rat mentality, they just want to be around <laughs> it. They're willing to do kind of anything are the ones that eventually end up being able to last because they they, you know, they're adaptable, they're flexible, yep. they're resilient. You know, have you seen that as well? 
Yeah, for sure. It's like people that have like, okay, this is, this is my art and I'm, I'm going to do this exact thing. And they have kind of a one thing they do, you know, they don't tend to last as long. And especially, you know, me kind of being an anomaly, it's not like I had the, oh, this is the album I want to make, or this is my band and we do this. Um, I just loved, loved, loved music and I loved all kinds of it. So it's kind of, you know, I have been adaptable and, and as, as things change, like you said, I, I might push the envelope here or there, or try something kind of off the wall here and there. I might go to LA and write, you know, pop for a week, or I might write, um, you know, rock or try to do hip hop hooks or whatever along the way. Um, but definitely kind of that, that versatility helps you hang around longer, uh, for sure. You know, I feel like I could get in a session with any artist and, and try to figure out something they haven't done or some new thing they could, uh, they could try, you know, I kind of take pride in that when I'm in a session. Um, and growing up on all those different kinds of music in that big hodgepodge just kind of, I think helps that, you know, like we, I'd have different, uh, you know, different mixes. It could be Nirvana or, or Guns N' Roses or whatever and on one side, and then it would be, um, you know, Beastie Boys and, and whatever at the other end, and then Babyface right. and Boys to Men and Jodeci on the other side. So definitely loved and appreciated all those forms and really kind of not even knowing it at the time, but was really studying like what, what made people tick and made these songs tick to get those reactions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I read a, an article about you in Forbes magazine from a few years back. And, um, you were talking about when you went to Belmont university during your time at Belmont, you interned, um, you know, with some publishing companies, which is kind of part of the, the program that, you know, that kids do when they're there and that you specifically were kind of working in the tape room of, uh, of a publisher and that your kind of role there as an intern was typing up, um, the lyrics for like the work tapes that the writers were turning in. And that kind of sparked my imagination because I started thinking about, well, what does one have to do in order to complete that task? The first thing is you have to listen carefully because you have to make sure that you understand what the words are and you're, you're writing down the correct thing. Uh, the, the second thing is you have to be careful that you're typing the right words as you're typing them. So you can't, you can't do a task like that mindlessly you have to engage yeah, and i'm thinking you know right. yeah you're very intently listening and 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 kind of studying the lyrics because you're looking at the lyrics that you are typing right in front of your eyes as you're hearing this and you probably gotta rewind a few times make sure you got that thing got this one and but like what a way to like you know it, it seems like it could be viewed as as a mundane task but like that's like university uh, <laughs> level, like studying, you know? Yeah, it was the perfect. I didn't even know it was a gig, but it was the perfect thing. And it was way down on the totem pole. You know, it's like the entry level. Mm -hmm. um, but like you said, I had no idea that was literally prepping. I mean, that is that was my education. I mean, Belmont was great. Learned what publishing was, learned copyright, uh, all that kind of stuff. Everything took the songwriting class. Songwriting, you know, wasn't a major then. And so I was just wanted to be in the music business. I couldn't believe there's actually a major, you know, of that anywhere in the world. Right. Uh, Oman was the one place I applied to, wrote the little essay, turned it in. I'm going there um, just because they had that program. But yeah, the, the tape room, I interned, I think it's seven different companies. Like they gave me some intern award. I interned so much. I could not get <laughs> enough of it because I was sitting there. I mean, I, first of all, I could hear writers, you know, right across the hall, the writing of the songs. I heard several songs that went on to be hits and I heard them. You know, not that I could hear everything they were saying, but I would hear them start it and and come out and walk around and pace and think and go back in there. So I kind of watched how they did their nine to five, you know, um, and picked up those kind of habits. And I was like, oh, that's what you have to do. You really have to grind on these things. They take a minute and then they yeah. would turn them in. And I got to see the process of it going from these terrible work tapes to a, 
you know, to a demo and I'm like, oh, wow. And then I was also responsible for like readying songs for pitch meetings. You know, now it's all texted and MP3 and emailed back then. I was kind of in the uh, CD generation of like making CDs, um, going from tape to CD for these meetings. So I would have to listen to those. If it was a five song meeting, I'd listen to all five of those songs. And if it was a George Strait meeting, I got to hear like, okay, are these the, are these the right ones? I mean, I ended up learning the catalog and yeah. I would kind of make my own little list on the side of like, oh, if I were in this place, I would pitch these three songs. Um, so it was wild what that did, you know, to my mind and just really got me laser focused on like, okay, what would these people, you know, why would I pitch that? Why are they pitching these? Or like, why did, what did they say in the second verse? Like you said, kind of winding back and making sure, um, you know, that you knew those songs. So I knew those songs as well as the writers did, you know, kind of backwards and forwards and knew all those catalogs. So that was, that was the perfect preparation. I didn't really realize it at the time, but um, looking back, that was great. That's where, you know, my publishing company um, that I started 12, 13 years ago. That's why we call it tape room music because I yeah. want it to be old school, actually intently listening to the songs. We meet with our writers, you know, one-on-one -on -one every couple of weeks. We just had a meeting actually before this interview where we went through and listened, you know, instead of just firing off new songs to people. It's like, let's make sure this is really, that we would really stake our reputation on this pitch or this song that we think it's, that we think it's great for this artist. So yeah. we try to follow kind of those old school rules with it, and that's kind of where that comes from. Right. There's something you said in the process that I answer. You you said something about winning an internal award. And I, I, I want to <laughs> point that out to any young writers or aspiring writers that are listening, that if you get a chance to intern, intern hard because, <laughs> oh, you know, yes. I mean, the, the fact that you did that to the level that you actually got recognition for your internshipness is, yeah, is so yeah, it's kind of a nerd thing. No, it's incredible, though. It's like if you're going to do something, do it the best you can. I mean, that's that's how you end up becoming a writer who's recognized and given awards is, well, if you're given the chance to be an intern, be the type of intern who will get awards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do do whatever you can to the best of your ability. You know, you got to I've always you know believed that. And um, and I would intern. I would I would cut their grass or do whatever on the weekends if I wasn't getting paid, um, which most of the time I wasn't, um, you know, so it was just great win win. I got to I really got placed at some great companies. Hamstein Music, I remember um, back in the day, there was a number one party the first day I started for uh, Just to See You Smile, an amazing Tony Martin, Mark Nessler song that uh, Tim McGraw recorded. And I got that first day. I was just like, oh, we're celebrating this. People get recognized for this. Who wrote, who are these two guys? Oh, they made the song up. You know, so all that, I kind of got hit with that first day of like, oh, this is wild. You know, wow. wow. these amazing. two random guys, or I thought they were random then they, they're amazing <laughs> songwriters. Yeah. Um, and I got to learn their catalogs, you know, backwards and forwards, but I got to, uh, to kind of witness that whole process really quick from like, okay, these two guys wrote this. Here's the demo. Here's the work tape. Here's the demo. Here's the, uh, the final product, you know, the, the results. So it was yeah. awesome seeing that there's no better education of, of what I've done and what I'm doing now than, than to be able to experience that for those, you know, four years. Yeah. I want to talk about drive a little bit because, you know, you were obviously very driven as an intern. Um, you graduated from Belmont in 1999. Um, 2002, you got your first single as a writer with, um, since I've seen you last, which Joanna <laughs> Janae recorded and, um, was not a, was not a big hit. Um, about three years passed and you know, there's not too much to speak of. And then you see, no. <laughs> all right, you get the, you get the lead track on, uh, you know, George Strait somewhere down in Texas record. Then you get the, the title track on Brad Paisley's time well wasted album. And again, not, not singles, but I mean, that's some pretty cool, some pretty cool cuts. And so it wasn't until yeah. 2006 that Carrie Underwood released. Don't forget to remember me. We were loading up that chair 
kept on talking, putting off goodbye. And she took my hand and said, Baby, don't forget. Before you hit the highway, you better stop for gas. And there's a 50 in the ashtray in case you run short on cash. Here's a map and here's a Bible If you ever lose your way Just one more thing before you leave Don't forget to remember me And that was, you know, your your first number one, your first, you know, success. But we're, we're talking... 1999 to, to 2006 that's Seven. a good chunk of time you know and so i guess my question is like what what kept you going and were there moments where you thought like man maybe i'm kidding myself maybe i need to switch gears here you know i i mean honestly no i i never thought like that i should get a real job or anything like that and that i think that has to do with like you said it's seven years after i got out 11 years in nashville you know with no money from this no top 40 know anything um and i just remember the first time uh, i had this publishing the first publishing deal i got which was way ahead of when i probably should have gotten one i probably had written 10 songs and i had somebody that well, i went to belmont with uh, Corey gearman who ended up working at a publishing company and they wanted him to go out and sign like a new young writer he ended up signing me so i got a little bit of paid practice there for um a year or so until that company shut down and then i had to go out and hit the streets again um but when i did that uh, just that feeling of actually getting paid, even on a draw, just a minimal kind of draw salary thing to write songs. I was hooked on that. And the pe- people around me, um, the girl I was dating at the time, who is now my wife and and my parents, there was nobody ever said like, all right, uh, you had your fun. Let's let's go on and, and actually make some money so we can eat and you know buy clothes and stuff like that. Um, that never happens. So I always tell people like, hey, you gotta, you have to believe it, but also the people around you, um, not discouraging you is a huge deal you know not that not you know a lot of people friends and stuff were probably like why are you still doing this what are you trying to accomplish um but the people closest to me never brought up um a plan b you know wow or never encouraged me to do that and plus one of the first rights that Corey set up for me was with a guy named david lee and he had had songs recorded to me that was like you know playing ball with lebron or something i was like this is a professional this guy knows what he's doing and he told me in my first session with him that it takes seven years he's like it takes you about seven years to get a hit mm. and so yeah. i just took it as the gospel and said okay seven years from now i have a hit hopefully wow. but it'll take that long um and so i wasn't like ah when's it gonna happen come on come on come on i just really expected it to take a while you know especially given a you know given my talent and singing level and all that kind of stuff i figured i figured it would take a while so i never really thought about doing another path you know i was open to doing whatever in the music business i guess if the writing thing didn't work out and i always wanted to open a publishing company eventually too but um but yeah thankfully there was nobody um you know that said i should quit and nobody i listened to anyway (laughs) you know the the floodgates really started to open over the next few years and you had you know kind of number one after number one i'm thinking about songs like all american girl uh, with carrie underwood um you got a song like you're gonna miss this with trace atkins and you know we've had enough of these conversations with people to understand that 
that when you begin to have success, you know, it, it's a different psychological animal to be a writer than it was when you were an underdog and oh, when you yeah. were sort of fighting and scraping. You know, you have to kind of like deal with things like number one, you know, you're, you're in the room with artists that have a lot of experience, artists that might kind of intimidate you a bit. And you've got to learn how to hold your own in those rooms. And then to go from being someone who's got to fight for your ideas to someone who everyone's expecting greatness out of. And that's, that's <laughs> a different thing to walk into a room feeling. H how did you handle the psychological aspects of success as it came your way? Cause you know, you spend most of your life as an underdog up to that point and, and you, you find out how to approach writing and life and music as an underdog. And now you've only got a, a little bit of time to figure out how to navigate it as a successful writer. Yeah. Like it's, it's a weird thing. Now I will say at least in Nashville, I mean, after a hit two, three, four, it's not like people are beating your door down to listen to your stuff or that wasn't my experience anyway. It's like, they keep you in that underdog. It wasn't probably mm -hmm. until mid 2010s that I was like, okay, at least I can get a listen here and there, but it's, it's still such, there are so many great songs, you know, kind of coming through people's doors that, it's never like, all right, give us your next thing. We'll record it, you know, without even yeah. listening. That that never has, still doesn't, you know, happen to me. But there was definitely a flip from like, especially after that first one, you know, can be written off as a fluke. You know, when you have a hit, it's not like, you know, people don't come calling then. But once I got on a, a little bit of a run, like you said, um, even in 2009, I got a songwriter of the year at ASCAP. I couldn't believe it. I had three hits in a year, got that award. And then there's like a three-year gap, hmm. you know before I had another one. So even after that, I was like, Oh, well, that was it. That was the peak. Wow. Um, you know, it won't happen again. There's a couple years there. I remember going back to the ASCAP awards and getting just going as a fan, I guess I didn't get any awards. I didn't go on stage for anything. I had no hits that year. And, uh, you know, that helped, I think that just helped build the fire and the drive. And it just made me know that I had to have a lot of gas in the tank, um, to keep going and that you don't ever get anything handed to you. So I think it just kind of fired me up even more, but back to your question, like, once it does start happening and people expect, especially like these days when you, you know, somebody will book a session, a three hour session and think you're going to go in there and just yell something out. Hmm. Definitely doesn't always happen. Um, it is more stressful, you know, than in the beginning. I was just like, Hey, that rhymed. I'm awesome. You know, <laughs> right. okay, so this, this, this song is finished and listenable. I did my job. Yeah. And now it kind of becomes like, you know, it goes from, Hey, this song not only has to be good, but we, we, you're bringing you in because we want it to be a huge hit and be a single right. contender and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, no problem. Um, <laughs> but that definitely, I mean, the the trepidation that comes with that and the anxiety that I still have, you know, if I have an artist tomorrow, I'm going to stay up tonight till I at least have a couple of ideas um, oh. that I think aren't terrible, you know, that I can go in there with. So I kind of, I've always tried to make up um, for all of that with a little preparation. I remember, um, nights where we'd me and a writer would stay up till four in the morning just brainstorming back and forth going or me doing it by myself just to not go in empty-handed so that was always kind of the rule i lived by there for a while especially um was just to not go in without anything and to make sure i'm um caring about that session and, and wow. giving that that artist or the co-writer the respect to to come in with something when i walk in so another note to young writers, if you think that Ashley Gorley is sleeping on the job now, he's not. So. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. There's definitely days I can be going with nothing now, a little bit more than I used to, but early on, I would always feel like I had to earn that, earn that place and just respect the craft. I always realized how tough it was to keep a gig, you know, mm. as a professional writer. And I just did not want that to go away. So I would always, um, always be ready. Yeah. It raises an interesting question because as I listen through your catalog, um, there's certain writers, um, you know, let's, let's pick someone kind of outside of your world, 
Uh, I look at like a Jim Lauderdale in the Americana kind of world. And like, you know, George Strait has recorded uh, so many of Jim's songs and Jim's such a great writer, but there's something like you hear a Jim Lauderdale song and you're like, man, that's a Jim Lauderdale song. And uh, when I listen through your songs, I, I can find a few dots to maybe connect, but it's not like, oh man, that's the, that's the Ashley Gorley thing right. right there. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people get called into rooms because it's like, oh man, this guy's a great, um, melody guy. This guy's a great lyric guy. This guy's yeah. a great idea guy. This guy's a great verse guy. Uh, I, I personally kind of like am having problems looking at your catalog and teasing out like wh- what is, what is Ashley's thing uh and maybe that means you have multiple things but i'm curious like when you get pulled into a room like is there something that you're kind of more known for or or what is what do you think it is that you bring to the table man i i I have tried to make that and keep that a mystery to be honest i mean just Mm -hmm. because like you said if you want to have a long-lasting career i i try i try to dissolve into the song you know so like Mm -hmm. it may be that i'm heavy on a lyric one day or that i'm bringing a different cadence or a melody to the table. I may be playing piano one day, guitar one day, playing nothing um, the next day. So early on, I just, again, I had, I had really good mentors and and they would just simply say like, hey, if you really want to be successful, you should be really good at lyrics, really good at a melody, phrasing, got to have ideas, you know, play everything a little bit, be a good producer for your demos, basically just checked off everything. And I was like, oh, wow, that's all you have to do is everything well. Um, <laughs> So it just gave me a better shot to be like, all right. I mean, I'm naturally probably more of a melodic um, person, but I also wrote poems and stories and everything growing up as a kid. So I really just keep both those hand in hand. You know, there's a lot of times, depending on the session, again, where I'm going to be the concept guy, where they're, you know, if I'm walking in with um, Chris Dubois, Taylor Phillips, um, Kelly Lovelace, some of these guys, then they're they're such great idea guys that that they're going to throw some ideas at me and then I'm just going to you know, kind of come up with what I think that song should sound like or the vibe or whatever. So, right. Yeah. It depends on the day for me. Um, yeah. I do melody lyric at the same time, which is kind of weird. So usually if I'm thinking of a line, I'm thinking of a melody at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I kind of sing the lines that I come up with, uh, huh. which is probably yeah. kind of weird, but I've never, never really been able to separate those two. So I would, I would say I do both. I don't know. Depend on who you ask, whatever I did that day, they'll say, Oh, he was mostly lyric or is mostly melody. And I know that, if I had to pick one, it would probably be more of the uh, different musical stuff or like the melodies and the, the phrasings and some of that stuff. Some people can say, oh, I could hear that you did that part or this part. But I'm like, yeah. no, you couldn't. You're just saying that now because, you know, I did it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I definitely I definitely I pay a lot of attention to the melody. I know that that's something I did different out of the gate, probably just with the R&B pop listening habits and background to where that stuff's important to me, you know, for a for a song to be catchy from the intro on and not just save the good melody for the chorus. Um, yeah. That's something I try to bring to the table in the songs, but yeah, I've, I've definitely tried to make it my thing, not to have a, not to have a thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to be said for diversification. Um, you know, you mentioned like 2009 and, and things were like popping off. Paul mentioned all American girl and, and you're going to miss this. We see songs like um, it won't be like this for long by Darius Rucker. Uh, then by Brad Paisley, I think he had a like three Brad Paisley number ones kind of in that era. But then in in 2011, as you mentioned, you started Tape Room, your publishing company, um, which if people want to do the math, uh, 2009 was all that activity. 2011 is when you started the company. So that's probably a good indication of about how long it takes the money to come rolling in after, you know, the, (laughs) the, 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 the hits. But 
you know, that could have been, as you say, there was like a three year period there where, you know, things kind of slowed down and yeah. the activity that could have been a real career transition where it was like, yeah, man, Ashley used to be like this hit songwriter. And then he started this amazing publishing company. He's a great publisher because he's got a, a writer's mind and, and now he's a publisher, you know, but, uh, you, you, you didn't make a, you just added publisher to your resume rather than transitioning to publisher. And after that, it's like, you know, good girl with Carrie Underwood in, in 2012, you know, also a top 20 pop hit certified double platinum. And then like just this supercharged moment the following year with Luke Bryant, where you got four oh. number one singles off the crash my party album with the, you know, title track goes four times platinum. That's my kind of night and play it again, go six times platinum. I mean, that was just like this monster uh, moment for you as, as a writer. Um, and you know, not only that, but that's kind of that moment of Florida, Georgia line, what people, have called bro country maybe derisively. Uh, but it, it really was like not only an explosion of success, but almost an explosion of success as part of this whole new movement of, of country music. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, like, did that, did you sort of think of yourself as like, Oh, I'm getting kind of focusing into the publishing now. Um, did it surprise you that your writing career almost took off even more after you became a publisher? Well, you know, I, I think I always thought, right, who knows how long this will last, especially when I had, you know, like like you're saying in 08, 09, where I had at least a couple things on the radio, you know, at a time. I, I always, I knew I was going to do the publishing thing regardless. I didn't really know if the writing would still work, you know, and then I would switch to more of an A&R publishing type role or, uh, or if the writing thing would continue. I know I didn't tap the brakes at all. So my plan was to be the player coach. You know what I mean? I want to be able to take myself in and out of the game, be able to sign people and really help them. I've always had a passion for mentoring and kind of coaching. So I really did want to do both at the same time. Now, when that all kind of blew up, Cruise, FGL, all the Luke stuff, that's my kind of night and everything. That was a really fun time. So definitely things, you know, I was writing with a few different people. I remember I had a lot of hits with Chris Stefano there in a row. He, uh, he moved here from LA and really brought some different track ideas and, and different stuff to the table. And, you know, there's just been a few times where it all kind of catches fire together. And like, like you said, with Luke, kind of my vision for what I think he would sound cool doing was exactly, you know, the same thing he wanted to do. So every now and then you just get on the same page with somebody, um, you know, like I did with Luke or like it's happened with Thomas Red or it is with Morgan right now where um, you both think the same things are cool, you know, and you're just trying these things and they're willing to try it, you know? Um, yeah. And that's just kind of what happened during that era. But, it, but that, that's a really fun, I mean, all these different little phases and people can say bro country or or different music stuff or there became some electronic things or cadences switched up however you want to say it um i love all those different things i love that phase i love whatever the phase is now i loved um back you know in the in the 2000s when it was mostly story songs i was writing don't forget to remember me laugh till we cried like you said the trace song the darius song you know family kind of stuff um so it just kind of ebbs and flows i love doing it all and i loved uh I love all those different phases, if you can even call it that, um, that we were kind of going through. But I was definitely pushing the envelope on musically on some songs just to see, to see, hey, what what can we do? Because I'm always trying to think what hasn't been done, but mm -hmm. is still a country song um, that kind of goes outside the lines or, or breaks a few rules here and there. It's always fun uh, when you write as often as I do. You're just trying some new stuff, you know? 
Yeah. Well, and it's of all genres that I thought would be open to absorbing, you know, elements from other styles. I didn't think country would be the one, you know, because it's sort of famously been uh, just sort of a, a, a traditional form of music. But I feel like in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, country's maybe been the most adaptable in terms of bringing in trap beats and bringing in, like you say, those different cadences and stuff. Yeah. It seems so like to me, people would always be like, what are you talking about? Because I would always think that like, uh, hip hop, rap, and country are really close cousins. I think those two genres are really, really similar, and people think they're like the the two most different there are. But as far as like describing your lifestyle and the things that you can talk about, and um, I always thought those were very, very similar. And even R and B having such an influence in country, and then you know pop melodies too, which are just great melodies. They can go any any which way. So I I always kind of thought those were closer than maybe other people did, and and meshed a little bit of that. Um, easier just because I thought it was more natural to do anyway. You know, you, you use that uh, image of a player coach uh, being a publisher and a writer. And I love that. I love, I love sports analogies. I love applying those to music. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, not only a gym rat, but a player coach, that's what you are. <laughs> um, but, you know, a as a publisher and as a writer, you've seen, you know, publishing income and how it works from all sides and all angles. And you know, we talked earlier about some of those early you know, cuts and, and the, like the Brad Paisley song that wasn't a single, um, but it was on a big album, you know, well at the time in 2005, you know, that's something that can make you some money. If an album goes platinum, you're looking at nine cents statutory rate split probably among three writers. And, and, you know, you can do that math and find out, Hey, I can actually make a little money from having an album cut. Now yeah. we don't live in that world now because of streaming. And, Unfortunately and, enough, yeah. Yeah. Um, and because we do our homework here as well, you know, I read an interview with you in music business worldwide talking a bit about, you know, the, the streaming income pie and master ownership and how that plays into everything. And for, for all the listeners that don't, that still don't know how to put all this together, you know, writers get, a uh, an, an odd little fraction of pennies when, it, when it comes to things that are streaming and master ownership is something that is sort of shared amongst the labels, the streaming services themselves, the artists get, you know, part of it in their artist royalty and then producers can get points on the record. You know, I'm with you in thinking that the next step somewhere down the line is that labels need to open up and begin to start sharing, you know, points on records with writers. Um, my question for you, not is, should that happen? We know that should happen. How do you think that happens? And I don't know. It's, I mean, nobody's going to give anything uh, out of the goodness of their heart away, probably. Right. And, the and laws we can't unionize as writers. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. I mean, what is happening, and it still doesn't really benefit, you know, people like me or writers that much, or is, uh, you know, you can be involved in the production a little bit more. You could executive produce and get some points. You could be kind of in charge of helping A&R project get a little bit of, you know, some points there. But really, you know, artists, a lot of times these days, it seems like are, are coming in, kind of blowing up, doing their thing on their own. And then they have some leverage going into the deal. So for artists right now, for the singers, it's good. They can go in and negotiate deals that, you know, they weren't able to get several years ago. Um, and so they're able to participate a lot. Now for the writers, again, that doesn't really help. You know, it always surprises people when I tell them the vast majority of my income comes from FM radio play. Yeah. Uh, it, it's wild. And it is, it is a kind of an outdated thing. Um, I've been very fortunate to, to be able to write the songs. A lot of the songs that sound like singles and that do well on the radio and kind of, kind of last, you know, don't burn out too bad. But I don't know on on the on the record side. I'm glad that I'm kind of in the class that I'm in. If my you know my daughter's 18, if she wanted to be a songwriter tomorrow, I don't know how that would. I mean, I would encourage her to do it. Um, but yeah, there's they've got to figure out some way to share correctly or appropriately 
you know, in that pie. Now that yeah. said, there, there is some money in streaming, especially, you know, on this Morgan record or on some records that stream um, like crazy and really get those big numbers. Right. Yeah. Great. But I mean, at some point it's kind of like the passion over the, I mean, I try not to even think about it, to be honest, you know, it's right. just like write the song of that day. And that's kind of the conclusion I've come to is like, okay, I'll help. I'll uh, petition or I'll study or I'll go to Washington. I'll do whatever to try to help lobby for that stuff. And, um, and I'll just hope that they come to the, the correct decision there. There are some things that we've done like at tape room, if it's a brand new artist and they're wanting one of our songs, then, then we would always say like, well, Hey, if we're going to take a chance on you, you know what I mean? You're taking a chance yeah. on our song. You yeah. should share that. So we're going to split some of the master ownership and everybody's been very, uh, you know, they've done that. They've said yes yeah. to that a few times. So if it's a new artist, so that's, that's one step in the right direction, just at least introducing the fact that maybe we deserve some of that master if we're, if we're, you know, let yeah. you record this song so that you know it's hard when the people that are in record deals and they just grab the song and do them I, I feel like there's a little more attention paid if we're going to put in time on a new project um then we've been able to participate in some of that but yeah yeah i'm not sure it's a very tricky uh tricky matter because it's not written you know it has to be new laws and they have to be you know seen and passed so yeah, right. definitely uh, you know, and, and it also helps that there are some songs, you know, that are either on XM or FM's playing a few, a couple of singles from some people at a time. It's a, it's a, you know, they're playing a lot more of a variety of stuff, I feel like. Um, and so a lot of times that income will trickle down from performances, but definitely is an issue on a, on what just a songwriter, you know, who's not producing and not singing the song um, can make from streaming. It's really tough. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, in a lot of ways, if there are going to be changes, if there are going to be, um, if the system is going to adapt, you know, guys like you are probably the best positioned because you have this huge, you know, track record of success and, and, you know, people want a, an Ashley Gorley song, you know, they, they want your, uh, what you bring to the table because you've proven that you can, can write hits. And so they, you know, they want to, to work with a guy like you. Um, and, and, you know, kind of piggybacking off what Paul said earlier about like, you know, once you have that confidence, do you walk in the room differently? I I'm curious if there's any songs that like either during that seven years until you kind of broke with Carrie Underwood, or maybe during that three years where, where things were kind of slow after the, the success in 2009, were there songs that you wrote in, in those times that you were just like, man, this is a good freaking song. I can't get any leverage. I've played it for all these people. They think, you know, nobody seems to be latching onto this. Then suddenly you, you know, now you're a guy who's written nearly 70 number one songs. And just the fact that your name's on it, people might be tripping all over themselves. Have you, have you kind of experienced that where there's been a song you really believed in, in the past that didn't get any traction, but once you kind of establish that track record, it's like, you know, people are all about it. Yeah, you know, I I would love to say yes. I went back and got all my B plusers, and now that now I made it through the pipeline. That has not happened. Um, those songs. I mean, there is such I mean, how many songs were getting written here today? You know, while we're talking, who knows a thousand um, in town. And so there's always been the bar there where it's like the song kind of above all um, since I've been here. And so that hasn't. I mean, if they weren't great back then, they're probably not great now. The only time that happens, like with the uh, Stapleton song where it just kind of takes a while for him to decide to record it and put it out. That's happened a handful of times. I had a Brad Paisley song that was like seven years old that ended up being a number one, but I definitely haven't gone back. I'm I'm honest with myself, which is a key to the writing. Like when I write a song, I'll call it out. If Hey, this is decent. This is not going to change the world. Let's either throw this away or let's kind of put it on the shelf and go to the next one. So I, I definitely look forward um, more than I look back. 
there might have been a, a small handful of songs I went back um, and maybe pitched, but I, I can't even really name any. I mean, it's been usually uh, the newer stuff. I feel like I've gotten better as I've gone on. Definitely nothing from those first seven years um, is going to beat, you know, what I've done these last seven, for example, at least to right. me. There have been a few, you know, there's been a few that get burned, which which stings sometimes when you you think you have a song and then somebody records it and it sounds great. And then maybe that person changes labels or they move on to the next album and it's not a single like like you thought it was going to be that that's just going to happen that's just part of the process and and you have to harden your heart a little bit to that um you know without getting too jaded but also keep your expectations low right uh you know that happens a few times but no i, I definitely i mean it's such a learning curve and a process that um i still don't think i have it figured out right so i think i i think my best stuff could be yet to come you know still i feel like that's a good that's at least yeah. how i operate inside my brain somewhere is that uh I'm, there's always more to learn always different things i haven't done yet and just keep trying i'm just thankful for what's you know happened up to this point but there's there's yeah. not especially early on when i was just trying to put stuff together and figure it out um there's some good ones there i, I can't say i have a ton of a pluses on the shelf that i think uh, i could go back and get from 10 plus years ago yeah yeah i interviewed merle haggard when he was almost 80 and i said what's the best song you ever wrote and he said i haven't written it yet there you go. Uh, that's right. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, such uh that... what does he know? <laughs> right. <laughs> um I want to briefly just hit a few highlights as a list here. Uh, as we said, you've written nearly 70 number one songs. Some of the ones that we haven't touched on, uh, You Should Be Here by Cole Swindell, Dirt on My Boots by John Party, Marry Me by Thomas Rhett, Eyes on You by Chase Rice, Rumor by Lee Bryce, um, I Don't Know About You by Chris Lane, One of Them Girls, Another Lee Bryce. Uh, these songs uh, are not just number one hits that I've mentioned. All of those were certified at least triple platinum. So, uh, and almost all of them, I, I think all of them hit the top 40 on the pop charts. I mean, all, all of these songs were not only hits, but, but monster hits. But when we look at your stuff, you know, you've got that, like we talked about nostalgia, you've got the sweet songs, you've got the heartbreak songs, you've got the Luke Bryan, just like party, you know, fun songs. And I have seen interviews with you where you've said that that stuff, the, the fun, party type of song, the song that people might dismiss as, you know, fluff or, or just good time, whatever that for you, those are, can actually be the most difficult songs to write, uh, even more so than like the rip your heart out kind of, kind of ballads. Uh, I'd love to know what you, what you mean by that and, and, and why writing a song that sounds, uh, simple can actually be quite difficult. Oh man, that I, I definitely believe that. I mean, I, I love piano and I would write a ballad every day, you know, a breakup ballad or a love ballad, you know, from the beginning, probably if it was up to me. Um, so that would be like a sweet spot to go, you know, writing a ballad every day though, would not be your best, uh, you know, method of success there uh, with the ratio going on. So I just think like a song kind of about nothing um, or about just a mood, a vibe, like to where it just makes everybody want to jump up and down dance. I don't think those are, those are easy. So I think a lot of times the songs that's, that sound the simplest to the listener are sometimes the hardest for the writer because you're really paying attention to how things roll off the tongue and just when just what do we talk about here and how do you say this and just kind of staying out of the way of the vibe and the groove and making sure that uh, everything's really singable. I just feel like, you know, a lot of times those songs uh, 
get discounted a little bit. You know, when it comes time to nominate songs for something, it's usually ballads. It's usually serious songs, story songs. Um, and I think some, there's some great up-tempo songs. They don't have to be sad or they don't have to be heavy, uh, to be a great, you know, to be a great, well-written song. Um, so I've just always stood by that and kind of passed that down even to my writers, just, you know, these don't just fall out. Um, sometimes sections of them do, and it's really fun and you catch a vibe, but a lot of times it's trial and error and trying all kinds of different things. The really, really simple songs that everybody can sing along to after hearing one chorus. I think there's something to that, you know, so, so that definitely sometimes can, can be trickier or, or more difficult or require, you know, a certain skill set as opposed to just, you know, a flowing minor breakup ballad or something like that, you know, that can just kind of meander and that you can kind of say whatever you want. Um, there's something to the way those other songs are put together. Um, just those songs that do make you feel alive and free and have a great Friday night that, that I think are tough, you know, are yeah. tough to do. And I've studied people that can do that really well over the years. And I love being able to do both. And I love when writers can do that and when artists can do that um, too. But every song is its own its own thing. So just if it's, if it seems lighter or it doesn't seem like it's about anything, you know, super heavy, then that that's on purpose, you know, that that's trying to communicate a certain emotion there. Um, and that lyric still has to match up just right. And the phrasings, and the melodies, they're all tricky. They're all impossible. They're all miracles when they work. Um, I still believe that. So they just all have their own space and time, but I, I definitely, there's some great, great, great songs that are kind of fun up tempo, just rocking things you can't get out of your head. And I think that, that uh you know has a place right alongside a you should be here story you know emotional song those are always going to be the ones that gravitate to you're going to miss this you should be here remember young marry me some of those kind of things that they're great uh you know they're they are what they are and, and they're really fun to write and try to evoke those emotions but there also is something in the like you said that's my kind of night played again those kind of songs that um that aren't so much that aren't too heavy, but, but that you just can't help but sing along to. That's a, that's a thing that as a writer, um, it's tough to nail down sometimes. So sometimes that's a little trickier. Rolling on 35s, pretty girl by my side. You got that sun tan skirt and boots. Waiting on you to look my way and scoop. Your little hot self over here. Girl, hand me another beer. Just up a little catfish dinner Gonna sound like a winner when I lay you down and love you right Yeah, that's my kind of night You know, it's, it's nice to have a, an artsy kind of a one-off restaurant. You got one um, and it's got great reviews and, and, and people like to eat there, but it's also cool to have like Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Um, everybody <laughs> loves, you know, and there's something to that. Like, well, what's that recipe? That's worth something, you know, just to, to kind of, you know, both sides of it. So it all has its place. You know, I love, I love the more artsy songs that are just kind of personal. Maybe the verse never even repeats. Maybe the melody is unexpected and it gets all kinds of wild chords in there, but there's, there is definitely something to the restraint of like working on the voicings, trying to make it sound very, very simple. Um, not generic. Those are two different things, mm. um, but sim simple and fresh. And, and it doesn't mean that it's generic just because it's simple or that just because it's not a huge, you know, emotional masterpiece, you know, so right. um, definitely believe that they all have their place and, you know, go to a concert, you know, I always think of writing um, with the spirit of a live show in mind, all the artists, I mean, that's where they're going to make their career and their money, you know, is through the touring. 
And so I, I write songs a lot with the live show in mind. What's the band going to want to play? What are the fans going to mm. want to hear? What's going to make them not go get a beer during that song? <laughs> um, so I like to think of it like that. A lot of times when I work with artists, just thinking about like, okay, if this was me, what would I want in my show? What would I want to represent me there? So I try to, I try to kind of touch on all of them. Yeah. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's been great to hear a little bit about your process and your career. Congratulations on all your recent success, and uh, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 